All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. So I do have a couple of copies of last week's handout on the attributes of God, if anybody is uh, desiring to have one. Otherwise, we have fresh handouts um, on the back table if you didn't get them from well earlier. Um, And the review page has questions one through seven on them. And then you'll see that we have two pages. Uh, The first page is front and back, and um, the second page is not, for this morning's lessons handout on questions 8 and 9. Okay, questions 8 and 9. All right, well, let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. It is a beautiful day, Lord, nice and cool. You take care of all of our needs, and uh, we thank you for that. You provide us with with all that we have, but also you feed us with your word, Lord, and we are thankful. We do pray, Lord, that your spirit would do so in great amount and in abundance this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's uh, let's take our review sheet first, as has been our practice. We're going to do recitation here at the beginning before we dive into uh, question eight. All right, and as usual, I'll state the question and we'll say the answer together. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature and man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. Question four, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What do the Scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, 
and the execution of his decrees. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful things here about our God, about the Word of God. And this morning, as we move into questions 8 and 9, we are continuing in our study of our Lord, of our God. And if you look at your next handout there, uh, we will say question 8 here together briefly. But before we do, um, what are some of the things that we talked about last week in the communicable attributes of God that uh, stuck with you or that you remembered or that you've been thinking about here this past week? Anybody would like to share or uh, bring up anything in particular? Wisdom? Yeah. Very good. In what ways have you maybe thought about that this week here, Stephanie, or why did that come to mind? Uh, I think it's because we were commanded to pursue it and to seek it. Yeah. Very good. Very good. What about mercy and, and grace? God is most merciful and he is most gracious. Um, there is none like him and none more merciful and gracious. But he also does give us a form of mercy and grace and calls us to be merciful and gracious. Right? Of course, we see patience, long-suffering, um, and that is a, a daily challenge for all of us. It doesn't matter what age we are. Right. Um, and in fact, kids, I would encourage you as long as well as your parents, but I would encourage you to be thinking regularly about how God calls you to be patient. Right. Patient with uh, your siblings, patient with friends, patient even with your parents and others. Um, it's good to keep that in mind and understand that it's a gift from God but it's also something that he calls you to do. Very good. Well, as we look at question number eight here this morning, uh, let's read that together. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Very good. So, in the simple... Uh, aspect of the answer to this question and the lesson that we learn here, right? Um, we are not pantheists, right? Um, we do not worship more than one God, neither do we say that one God, that any more than the one and living God really exists, right? The other gods that other uh, world religions would claim or that others would come up with, 
are idols. They're false gods, right? And they are dead. They're worthless. Uh, they're nothing. Let's see what God teaches us in the scriptures in regards to his being the only one God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. If somebody could grab that, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And if somebody else could grab 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Okay, very good. When you have it, just go ahead and read it. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Very good. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? Um, very clear statement uh, regarding God and there only being one God. 1 Corinthians 8. Thank you. Very good. Well, that that passage is one uh, in this discussion, among others, is one well worth memorizing, right? Um, as all of Scripture is, but to as a very clear statement of the one God that we serve. In contrast to what? What did you hear the contrast of stated very clearly? Idols, right? All others are idols. Um, that's something important to remember, right? Because uh, those who are not saved, those who do not believe in the one living and true God, um, will make idols and gods of their own and have, right? And they will try to convince even uh, the faithful to uh, turn from God. Uh, we are going to consider more of that in Hosea tonight in our evening sermon and series um, regarding their fleeing to and turning their back on God to uh, the idols of Baal and and worshiping them. Uh, but so as we consider God and His uh, Him being the one singular true God and the rest being idols, what other what other statements that speak to this did you hear in that passage? Mm-hmm. Yep. And what did Paul say? What did Paul tell Corinth? He not only said there's one God and we believe in him, we serve him, we worship him, but he said and pointed out who that is in his persons, right? He mentions two of the three persons of the Trinity, right? God the Father, and what is true of him, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, 
and through whom we live. Right? So this also is uh, very similar to the wording that John gives in the beginning of his gospel, right? Be- regarding the word, regarding Christ, regarding Christ's work in creation. Um, and there are other passages that, of course, are parallel to that, to this passage here in 1 Corinthians that we could examine regarding Paul's words there. So, what wonderful truths, wonderful truths in, in pointing out uh, that God is one, and but he is three persons in one God. And we see both of those uh, clearly referenced and discussed there. Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> I can read that. Sure. And go ahead and start back in 20, if you would, brother. Yes, sir. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge. You carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And that final phrase there, for I am God and there is no other, right? Yeah. No, that's fine. That's great. Uh, very good. So we see this repeated from God himself, right? Um, his self-attestation that he is God and there is none other. Right? There is no other gods beside him. Of course, this draws our attention and should back to uh, the first table of the law in Exodus 20. Uh, Should it not? Well, in Isaiah 44, just a chapter before, we also read in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. There is none beside Him. Again, this this repetition that we see as we even if you put as we're reading through Isaiah and you see these words in 44 and then all that we just read in 45 verses 20 through 22, the Lord saying over and over again into the ears of his people, hear this in the midst of what you are, are in, in the midst of what you've been doing, I am God, there is none beside me. So there is only one God. And what is true of that one God? He is living and true. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. And really, there's wonderful context all the way back into verse 1 of this chapter. But for this morning, we'll read 10 through 12. Does somebody have that? Go ahead. 
But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath neither quakes, emanations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. Very good. So there are important things that we need to know and we need to understand, especially in contrast here, because the Lord puts himself in contrast to any other claims that may be made by anybody else even today, right? Because as you, as you consider even the beginning ver, uh, phrases in verse 10, that the Lord is the true God, and he is the living God. Right? He is alive. He is living. These two statements right, are made by no other uh, world religion about their gods. They can't, and they don't. Right? They're, their God is their God, but their gods they hope, they fear, and they tremble from. And they, they would hope that they would do something from their pleas, kind of like the the prophets of Baal, but yet their gods have no eyes, no ears, no ability. They're lifeless, right? And so we see not only the the statements about God being true and living to be actual accurate statements about him, but also they stand in, in stark contrast to any of the other gods that people would claim, right? Um, but he is the true God. He is the living and the everlasting. He's the living God and the everlasting king. Okay? And the living God, the true God, the, the everlasting king, he acts and has acted. And, and, and he promises these things even as he makes these statements in the rest of verse 10, 11, and 12. Um, statements about creation. Right? And listen to verse 11 again. Thus you say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Right? All of the false gods, where are they confined? Here. Because they've been crafted here by the hands of men. Right? They're on the earth from the earth, under the heavens. But what is true about the true and living God? He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. He is a God like none other. Besides Him, there are none. But even if they were to compare what any, what any of the claims of the false gods that they said that they had ever done, they cannot claim these things because it's not true of them. John 17 in, in the New Testament, John 17, verse 3. I'll begin at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also may glorify you 
as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Are there any other words that we could use in describing what God being the only true God means? Are there any other words to explain? If somebody were to ask, so we read in Scripture, and we read even in these passages, that he is the only true God. What does that mean, that he is the only true God? Right? What does him being true and the only true God mean? That means that any other uh, things that try to put themselves in the place of God are false gods. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's right. That's right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I've heard a story about a preacher who's uh, a preacher that's invited to preach the gospel in a church. And um, after the service, uh, somebody had him uh, a letter. He opens up the letter and says, what does your God differ from all these other gods? And I mentioned who you're now there. So the pastor responded very wisely, an empty tomb. Mm. So the testimony of a living God, a living Savior, testifies that he is risen. Yeah. That he is the true living God. Yeah. He's the reigning Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. That's great. Any other comments on that? Well, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 9. Can somebody grab that and read that? So we see the work of the Lord, right? We see the work of the Lord in bringing people from that which is false, bringing them to confession and repentance, bringing them to see the truth, opening their eyes and their understanding to see the truth that what they were following were indeed idols. And they've turned from such idols and they've turned unto who? The living and true God, right? And even his act, his work in the hearts of men and women, his redemptive work, his gracious work, um, both in salvation, but also in, um, in turning his people when we go wayward uh, back to himself um, in confession and repentance um, is proof and evidence of his being the true and living God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. 
And also, this is the end of John's first epistle. I read 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That was much of what John wrote about in his first epistle, wasn't it? Understanding the stark contrast of either being children of light or children of darkness, right? Children of Satan or children of God. And what does that mean, right? Uh, Don't love the world, (laughs) he said in chapter 2, right? Don't love the things of it either. Um, But truly, our love, our devotion, our worship uh, needs to be devoted to God. But John does not mince words. He is very clear, black and white, and really provides us wonderful, uh, wonderful instruction by way of many contrasts in that epistle. And so we see him ending wonderfully where um, he where he ends and really um, kind of a nice bookend to where he began. Right. And talking about the one who is manifest, talking about the one who they had seen and heard. Who's Jesus Christ? Ah, Yes. And he ends by saying, we know the son of God has come. Right. And uh, he has given us understanding, opened our eyes and our understanding that we may know him who is true, that we may see him for who he is, that we may live and serve him and obey him. Amen. Well, very good. Any other uh, thoughts or comments before we move on to question nine? in the catechism. So we've seen this flow, right, of establishing what uh, Scripture is as the Word of God, what it reveals to us, and how God reveals himself to us in the pages therein. And, And we're focusing here towards the beginning of the catechism here in these questions about who is God, what is true of him, right? And if you remember back in your uh, review sheet, in question six, this uh, question nine now fully and more fully fleshes out an aspect of question six, right? Remember, question six was, what do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. And so here we see in question nine that it's going to focus on the persons of the Godhead. So we've been taught, we've considered, we've meditated on the attributes of God. And so now let's consider even more of uh, his personhood and and the three persons in the Godhead. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There will be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Very good. Well, as we um, consider the persons of the Godhead and as we even uh, consider the scriptures that 
help us and support us in this way, um, let's look at uh, these scripture passages. And in this table, uh, just to keep you on your toes and to help you uh, stay engaged here this morning, um, I've made this to where the you're going to draw lines from the characteristic or the truth on the left to the correct passages on the right. Okay, so just because they're right across from each other doesn't mean that they correspond uh, directly to those passages. Let's look at um, the names of the Godhead together and where in the passages where we see those to be true. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3 to begin with. Matthew chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, if somebody could read that. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Very good. So when people talk about or ask you, well, where in the Bible do we how, where in the Bible do we learn and understand more about the Trinity, right? Because the word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but we see all three persons of the Godhead named together. Here is the classic and I think go-to passage in that regard, where you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present together when Jesus was baptized by John. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28 at the end of that gospel, right, in the Great Commission. Another wonderful passage. Somebody could read verses 18 through the end. Verses 8, let's go for it. Good. So these are the very words of Christ. We have his instruction regarding how baptism should be carried out. Right. Uh, We also see that baptism should be done in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, We see also other aspects in Christ's words here. Right. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Right. That authority was given to him by the Father, right? And, of course, we see the work of the Spirit in, uh, in and, I mean, these are teachings and doctrines that we also are understanding as we read this, right, from other passages as well. But um, the, the work of the Spirit in uh, his disciples in order to do these things, in order to teach, in order to make disciples, Right? Uh, that the Lord would be with them always, even to the end of the age, and indeed, he is with us even now. 
Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. Who has that? Go for it. Amen. So that's the Pauline benediction to Corinth there, right? One that I frequently use at the end of our worship services. Um, Yes, so we see um, all three persons here named together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so I gave you I gave you a freebie, right? Because I mentioned the, the, the item on the left at the top and we went right to the passage. We're we're not going to do that moving forward. Let's let's mix it up a bit. All right. So let's look at uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you look at the categories and the descriptions on the left, which one corresponds best to this passage and the truth of what this passage is teaching us? Right. The Son declared to be God. That's right. Jesus is the Word. Right? Jesus is the Word. We see that very clearly here. We see that also, same chapter, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the things I want you to kind of put in your your mental bank um, for help, even as you may talk to Jehovah's Witnesses um, or even Mormons and others who would claim that and deny the the deity of Christ. Right. This John 1 1 is a classic passage and really a, a very important passage in the defense of Christ's deity. It is one that uh, followers of such false religions are usually trained to defend first, right? But it is one nonetheless that should be pressed. And I know you're not Greek scholars, okay, but um, there is benefit. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the, the meme, if you're connected with me on Facebook, a little bit of the Greek humor where uh, talking about uh, different languages using the use of the definite article, the, right? And ancient Greek has like, you know, uh, 10 to 15 of them, right? So um, in all of its various forms. Um, And so anyhow, that was a poor setup to a funny joke. You'll have to go back and and look at my my picture. But anyhow, so that posted on there. But my point is, is that the definite article, the, makes a difference. And when you look in, especially in the Greek, right, You can see it very clearly that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
atheos, the God. And you, you, the use of the definite article makes that exactly the way it sounds. Definite, right? That is absolutely true. He is the God. He is God. Um, so, whereas they may try to do, you know, word splicing and, and make word sausages with the English, um, they can't with the Greek. And so, um, if you want to put that in your mental bank, that's the definite article in the original language comes before, and the word was God. Uh, that's helpful. Yes. So, funny story about that. Uh, after a friend of mine when I was in seminary, it was a total sort of came to the door, and, and they know John 1 1 better than most, most well trained Christians. They know the Greek, they know, I mean, they know it like they're dead, they're real into their head. Yeah. And, and uh, so if you're going to talk to them, be ready. Um, yeah. And, and they will go into the, the Greek and the article, they have it memorized, they know it, they have it memorized. And so they didn't know they were talking about Pastor at the time, and he loved some of the And, and was, they were getting the Greek article from Greek, and he says, Oh, you know Greek? You read Greek? Well, you mean, hang on a second. And so he goes and gets the Greek Bible, and he says, Show me a Greek article. Right. Just point out. Yeah, point out. And they're done. They have, yeah. they, it's all wrong memories. They have no idea. They don't know. They, they, they don't actually they can't digest what they're talking about. Mm. So mm. be aware when, you go, when you're talking to them that. They probably don't know that you do, but they don't actually know. It's just no. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Yes. Uh, in the translation, they do violence on the text where they um, change uh, the word with God, but they change it at a small G, mm-hmm. showing that a train came well, it frankly contaminated the scriptures by saying that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God, mm-hmm. that he was a God. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation, right? They've raised up scholars of their own to translate the scriptures, and it fits their theology, right? So, um, and their translation is the New World translation. So, if you ever come across that, that is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation from their own scholarship. Um, John 10, verse 30. Right, this is um, in the Good Shepherd discourse that Christ gives, and he um, is talking about, um, he's talking to the Jews in the context of this, Right, and he's answering them. Right, he, they ask him the question in verse 24: How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them: I told you, and you do not believe. Right, the works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here's the piece. I and my Father are one. Again, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here Christ pointing to the reality that he is the second person of the Trinity. He and the Father are one. 
and also clearly then, of course, supporting his deity. Well, as is usual with teaching, I don't think we're going to be able to get through all of these today. We'll probably have a part two next week. But let's uh, let's keep moving along here. Matthew 11, uh, verse 27. Matthew 11, verse 27. Anybody have that? You got it? Go for it. All things has been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, very good. Very good. So all, thing, all things have been delivered to Christ, right, by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father and vice versa, right? So in this passage, well, let's also look at Hebrews 1.3 to get a clearer picture of where it's connected in our chart. Hebrews 1.3. What do we hear in this passage? There are a lot of things that are meaty and wonderful about Christ. But there's one that helps us with what it's connected to in our chart. So he's the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Right? He upholds all things by the word of his power. So we see that God is three persons, uh, and that's a typo. Three persons should be plural. The same in substance, right? The same in substance. All right, let's pick it up a little bit here. And uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Very good. So this also is a passage that supports and gives proof to question number eight, right? What we were just talking about, the Lord being one God. 
But it also here supports that God is three persons, yet one God. We also see that to be true in Exodus chapter 20. Right? Exodus chapter 20. In the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Alright, John chapter 1, verse 18. Let's go back to the Gospel of John. Just got a few more to go in this chart. John chapter 1, verse 18. Go for it. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, very good. And so we see that um, Christ is the only begotten Son in this verse, right? Um, he, he is in the bosom of the Father, as some translations uh, note it. First John 15, same gospel, chapter 15 and verse 26. Fifteen and verse twenty six, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Okay, so we see here um, aspects of his what we what the divines call his personal properties. That's what's being looked at here. That's the emphasis here in these two passages. In question ten we're going the the catechism answers the question well what are his personal properties okay or their personal properties in the father son and holy spirit acts chapter 5 verse 3 acts chapter 5 verse 3 and 4 there we read but peter said anias or Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it in your was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Okay. So we see here um, that the Holy Spirit is declared to be God, right? For he, he mentions lying to the Holy Spirit, right? And then here he ties that and saying, you've not lied to men, but to God, right? Pointing to the Holy Spirit being God. All right, and then finally... Uh, two verses over from where we were just before, 
in 1 Corinthians 8 um, and verse 6. First Corinthians eight and verse six. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Very good. So God is declared uh, excuse me, the Father is declared to be God here in this verse, right? So we see each of the three persons in the Godhead. Um, and their deity proclaimed and defended. Um, and we also see all of these other aspects um, in, that are stated in the question, supported and proclaimed to be true, that he is the one true eternal God, same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Okay. So again, next week we're going to look at those personal properties. Um, I think next week I'll, I'll also hold um, the second chart that you have on your second page there. I'll hold that for that time because uh, we're at time and uh, I don't want to do just a two-minute run-through or just say, you know, I uh, hope you enjoy reading through the chart. Okay. Um, so, but that chart you can see there is focused on heresies against the biblical teaching of the Trinity. Okay, heresies against the biblical teaching of the Trinity. Uh, for there have been many in the course of the centuries uh, in the history of the church. Uh, there are some that still have their heads reared today, right? Um, and as nothing is new under the sun, uh, we find that they all find... Uh, their similarity and origins even back with these uh, very ones here in this chart. So we'll look at modalism. We'll look at tritheism, Arminianism, oh, excuse me, <laughs> Arminianism, uh, Arianism, excuse me, uh, Docetism, Ebionitism, Macedonianism, uh, Adoptionism, and Partialism. We'll look at those heresies as we consider uh, false teachings regarding the Trinity and the, and the history of it. And uh, then we'll pick up on question 10, Lord willing, um, and the tail end of that class, and uh, we'll move on. All right, very good. Um, Justin, would you mind closing us in prayer, brother? Sure. Thank you. Thank you.